Unshackled of Pacific Garden Mission presents History's Greatest Sermons, where we share the personal history of godly men who brought forth the truth of the gospel in powerful sermons to a world long ago. And now, here are your hosts, Tim Lundeen and Kelly Robbins. All right, Kelly, welcome back. Good to be here. Uh, I want to remind listeners, this is a part two Mm -hmm. of a sermon by Charles Spurgeon. So I would highly encourage our listeners to check out the Unshackled app where you can listen to all of our archived episodes, not just uh, History's Greatest Sermons, but all of the Unshackled and mm. uh, episodes created by Pacific Garden Mission. Um, real quick, this sermon is titled Beauty for Ashes, and he's going to cover three parts. The lamentable condition in which mourners find themselves, mm-hmm. and that is sitting in ashes. Yes. And then two, the divine interposition on their behalf, which is when the ashes are removed. And three, the sacred gift or that beauty for the ashes and the first part again you should go back and listen to it he kind of covered the more uh the ashes yeah. part the mourning yeah and you had to sort of set the table yeah. to be able to understand what beauty there is and this wonderful transaction that god makes yeah he, it, it's not fair at all no but he brought <laughs> us to this great point of understanding you know this imagery of putting ashes on our head is not of course it's not modern it's not common at all but he's saying that imagery isn't a kind of a false humbleness before mm-hmm. God. It's a recognition of our state, yes. that there's nothing lovely about us. And putting ashes on our head is like, wow, you're right. But we do need to hear part two. Okay, let's so go. So here is part two from Charles Spurgeon. But all along we are tending that way by nature, for we are of the earth, earthy. When we put ashes on our head, We do but confess ourselves to be what we really are. The use of ashes would seem to indicate that the fire is out. Men would not place burning coals upon their heads, but when they cast ashes there, they mean to say, these ashes from which all fire is gone are like ourselves. We too are spent. Our fire of hope has burned out. Our joy our confidence, our strength have all departed from us and left us only the black ashes of despair. Is not this suggestive of a state of feeling common enough to truly humbled men? Let me ask my brethren, have you never felt as if your coal were quenched in Israel? Have you not owned that, apart from any salvation which might have come to you from our dear Lord and Saviour, you had no hope whatever? Have you not felt as if every spark of faith and love and gratitude and all that was good was gone out in darkness? Some of you young Christians have never stumbled into that slow, and I hope you never will. But if you ever do, It may console you if I let you know that older saints have been there before you and have had to cry to the strong for strength, or they would have perished. Some of us know what it is to feel as if we had not even a spark of grace left. We cry, if aught is felt, tis only pain to find we cannot feel. At such times... We have felt that if there was any prayer in us, it was only a prayer to be helped to pray 
or to be helped to mourn that we could not pray, for our stock was lying dead, and our poor husbandry yielded us no increase for lack of dew from above. Our soul has been in a state of drought. The rain from heaven has been withheld, and the earth has broken and chapped beneath our feet, devouring rather than nourishing the seed. God's children have their droughts and famines, and then dust and ashes are fit emblems of their dry and dead condition. Ashes, too, as the symbol of sorrow, might also indicate having passed through the fire of trial even as these ashes have been burned. Truly, some of God's best servants have been most often through the furnace and have been so long in the heat that strength fails them and hope well nigh expires. They cry to God for patience to endure all his holy will, but they feel that their own power is as much spent as if they were burnt to nothing but ash, and there was nothing more left of them upon which the fire could kindle. Is it not a mercy that the Lord looks upon such as these, the utterly spent ones who are ready to be blown away and to perish even as smoke and dry ashes are borne away by the wind and lost? You who are at ease in Zion know little about these terrible feelings, but you should be grateful to God and sympathize with those who are more exposed to tribulation. Join with them in magnifying the Lord because he promises beauty instead of these ashes of the furnace. Ashes also, as you know, are the emblem of death. The Romans placed in sepulchral urns the ashes of the dead. We say dust to dust, ashes to ashes when we bury the departed. It is not an uncommon thing for tried saints to complain that they are brought into the dust of death by a faintness of mind which renders life a difficulty. We come to look upon the grave as a refuge and a relief. Ah, cries one, they may as well bury me, for I am more dead than alive. Well may I heap ashes on my head. Like Elijah, they say, let me die, for I am no better than my father's. To such depths of grief, the best of men have sometimes descended. Many of the most peaceful and joyous spirits have joined in David's description of himself. I am as a man that hath no strength, free among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, whom thou rememberest no more, and they are cut off from thy hand. But enough of this dolorous ditty. Let us now change the subject. We have shown you the believer in the ashes. Let us now rejoice that some better thing is in store for him. Secondly, there is a divine interposition. The Lord himself breaks in upon the mourner's misery and makes the most gracious arrangements for his consolation. 
When a man is in sore trouble, he naturally begins to look this way and that for deliverance, and thereby much of the man's mind and heart are made manifest. You may readily judge whether you are a child of God or a hypocrite by seeing in what direction your soul turns in seasons of severe trial. The hypocrite flies to the world and finds a sort of comfort there. But the child of God runs to his father and expects consolation only from the Lord's hand. True grace abides with God and submits itself to his will. This is always good for us. Brother, if the Lord makes you sick, remain sick till the Lord restores you. For it is dangerous to call in any other physician to your soul but your Lord. If the Lord frowns, do not ask others to smile, for you can derive no joy from that source. If it is God's wrath that breaks you, let God's love mend you, or else remain broken. I will not be comforted till Jesus comforts me is a sweet resolve of a truly penitent soul. For has not the Lord said, I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. I, the Lord, do all these things. Will you take the healing and the making alive out of Jehovah's hand? God forbid! Where you have received your smart, there get your sweet. Where you do drink the gall of sorrow, there drink the wine of joy. For in the Lord's hand there is abundant mercy to be found, and he will end your misery. According to the text, the way in which believers rise out of their mourning is through the coming of Jesus. Read the chapter again. What does the Lord say? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me. Yes, beloved. Our hope lies in the mission of Christ, in the person of Christ, in the work of Christ, in the application of the blood of Christ to our hearts. We turn our eyes evermore towards the hills from whence comes our help. Look, O sinner, always to the brazen serpent, whatever serpent bites you whether it is the old serpent himself or some smaller serpent of the same brood which lurks in the way and bites at the horse's heels, still look to the one appointed cure. Never speculate in healing drugs, but keep to the one antidote which never fails. Jesus is the consolation of Israel, and let not Israel place her hope elsewhere. And mark you, it is Jesus coming in the gospel which is the mourner's hope. For this coming of the Lord is to preach good tidings to the meek and so to bind up the brokenhearted. I have little confidence in those persons who speak of having received direct revelations from the Lord as though he appeared otherwise than by and through the gospel. His word is so full, so perfect, that for God to make any fresh revelation to you or me is quite needless. 
To do so would be to put a dishonor upon the perfection of that word, in the most sure word of testimony. There is a release from every difficulty, a plaster for every sore, a medicine for every disease. My dear sorrowing friend, it is very dangerous to look for consolation from dreams or from opening of the Bible upon certain texts or from fancied voices or from any other of those foolish superstitions in which weak-minded persons seek for comfort. Go you to what God has said in the scriptures, and when you find your character described and promises made to such a character as your own, then take them home, for they are plainly spoken to you. Go not about to look for comfort in the cloudland of fancy or the moonshine of superstition, but believe in the Lord Jesus, who comes to bless broken hearts in no other way than by preaching to them the glad tidings of his grace. You are not to expect the Lord Jesus to speak with you in any other way than by the written word applied to the soul by the Holy Ghost. Look for no new revelation. Drive out the very idea as deceptive. If an angel were to come to my chamber and inform me that he brought a message from God which would tell me more than is written in the scriptures of truth, I would not listen to him for a moment, but say, get you behind me, Satan. The end of these manifestations has come. The stars no more appear, for the sun has risen. Our Heavenly Father has already sent the Lord Jesus, and it is written, last of all, he sent his Son. In Christ Jesus there is such a fullness of truth and grace that all the angels combined could not increase it. He who looks for more revelation should beware lest he receive the curse with which the Bible concludes, which will certainly come upon any who either add to or take from the inspired words of God. The sum of the matter is this. If there is any comfort to be received, it is in Christ. And if there are any ashes to be taken away and beauty to be given, it will be through the Lord Jesus in the preaching and the reading of the word. This much by way of protest against the superstitions of weak minds. But now I want you to notice a something which does not appear in our English version, but is clear in the Hebrew. It is that the Lord very easily makes a change in his people's condition. For the word in the Hebrew for ashes is ephir, and the word for beauty is peer. The change is very slight in the original. Some idea of the similarity of the words may be given you in English if I quote from Master Trapp. The Lord promises to turn all their sighing into singing, all their musing into music, all their sadness into gladness, and all their tears into triumph. Perhaps I may myself give you a closer imitation still. And, and more after the Hebrew model, by saying he turns our mourning 
into mourning. In the case before us, we might say he gives us splendors for cinders, beauty for ashes. Now as readily as we change a word by a single letter, so easily does the God of all comfort alter the state of his own people. With him, nothing is hard, much less impossible. From the cross to the crown, from the thorn to the throne, from misery to majesty is but a hand's turn with the Lord. Often does he call his people, like Mordecai, from sitting at the gate to riding upon the king's horse. Like Joseph, from lying in the dungeon to ruling the land. Like Job, from the dunghill to double wealth. Like David, from the caves of Engedi to the palace in Jerusalem. This he does both suddenly and easily, as when a man lights a candle and the darkness departs at once. How charming and astonishing the change! To pass in a moment from winter into summer, from midnight into noon, from storm into profound calm. This is the finger of God, and it is often seen. When you are at your lowest, do not conclude that it will be months before you can rise. Not so. From the nadir to the zenith, you will spring at a single leap when the almighty helper girds you with power. David in the Psalms describes the Lord coming to his rescue in haste most marvellous. Out of the depths was he snatched by the flash of Jehovah's power. On cherubim, on cherubim, right royally he rode, and on the wings of mighty winds came flying all abroad. And so delivered he my soul, who is a rock but he. He liveth, blessed be my rock, my God exalted be. How joyously he sings, and well he may after so special a rescue. There is no slow travelling with God when his people are in sorrow. Before they have time to call, he answers them. While they are yet speaking, he hears their requests. He hears them chanting, De profundis, and he lifts them to sing aloud, Gloria in excelsis. From out of the depths, their tune changes to glory in the highest. Nor are there slow pauses of weary hope, but the Lord works a world of wonders in the twinkling of an eye. Thus we see how our Lord gives beauty for ashes. We now turn to the last point, which is what he bestows instead of the ashes, beauty. All disfigurement is removed. The ashes had made the person to be defiled, uncomely to others and unpleasant to himself. But all this is removed. Beauty is given, and his countenance is not marred with dust and grime. His face is bright with joy and beaming with hope, no more unpleasant with the eye. The person has even become attractive and delightful. The original Hebrew implies that occasions for joy and emblems of joy are also given, for it might be read a chaplet for ashes. 
The ashes were on the head, and now a crown is placed there. The allusion is to the nuptial tiara which men wore on their marriage day. The Lord's mourners are to be decked with crowns of delight instead of being disfigured with ashes of grief. When does that happen to us? Do you recollect when you first obtained a sense of forgiveness? How gloriously were you then arrayed? When the father said of his prodigal son, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. That was a high day. And so was it with us when we were delivered from our filthy rags and clothed in righteousness divine. Our ashes were gone then, and a crown adorned our heads, forgiven. It was a joy of joys. Even now, as we look back upon it, we begin to sing again. Happy day, happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. We went a little further on in spiritual life, and then we discovered that we were the children of God. We did not at first know our adoption, but it burst gloriously upon us like a newly kindled sun. Do you recollect when you first learned the meaning of the word and perceived that adoption secured eternal salvation? For the Heavenly Father does not cast his children away, nor can they cease to be the objects of his love. How can any child be unchilded? And if still a child, he must still be beloved and still an heir. When you once drank consolation from that doctrine, did you not receive a tiara for ashes? How lovely a thing it is to be a child of God! Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. We lived a little longer, and we began to understand the doctrine of vital union with Christ. We had not dreamed of it at first. We then discovered that there is a vital, actual, conjugal union between us and Christ, that we are married to him. It is a great mystery, but yet it is a great truth. It is all but inconceivable that we should be members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, and yet it is even so. That was a heavenly day wherein we perceived that we were one with Jesus by eternal union one. Then we rejoiced as wearers of a marriage crown, and we sang, My beloved is mine, and I am his. Since then, we have learned other truths, and on each occasion of being thus taught of the Lord, we have again obtained a crown for ashes. Another and yet another chaplet has adorned our brow, we have felt ourselves to be made priests and kings unto God, and the beauty of the Lord our God has rested upon us. All glory be to his name. Let us remark that the contrast of our text is peculiarly suggestive, because it is not quite what we might expect. 
The Lord takes away our ashes, but what does he give us in exchange? The natural contrast would be joy, but the Lord bestows that which is better, namely beauty, because that is not only joy to ourselves, but to others. A thing of beauty, as we say, is a joy forever. A beautiful person gives pleasure to all around. Now, child of God, you are not only to have those ashes taken away which have hitherto disfigured you, but you are actually to become the source of joy to others. How pleasant that will be for you, who have so long touched the mournful string that you have distressed your family. Yes, young friend, you are to make your mother rejoice by telling her that you have found peace with God. You are yet to cheer your father's heart, young woman, when you shall say to him, Father, I have found him in whom you trust, and I am trusting in him too. Yes, poor mourner, you will yourself be comforting other mourners one of these days. You, who have been in giant despair's castle, shall help in pulling down the monster's den. You can hardly believe it, but so it shall be. In the sense of being a joy to others, many of the Lord's people are very beautiful indeed. You cannot help being charmed with them, especially with those of deep experience. Good men are glad of the company of those to whom the Lord has given the beauty of grace. Even the ungodly, though they do not confess it, have a respect for the majesty of holy characters. There is a charm about beauty which makes her ride as on a lion through the midst of her foes, Every man's hand is bound to defend her, and none dare injure her. The beauty which the Lord gives to his people is as a queen among all beauties and sways a potent scepter. Yes, and when the Lord makes his people beautiful, they are a delight to even God himself. For the Lord rejoices in his works, and his works of grace works are the noblest labor of his hands, and as being fullest of grace are the most graceful. The Lord delights in his people. We read of the Lord Jesus that his delights were with the sons of men, and even now, Though angelic harps ring out his praises, he loves to be here in our churches and to commune with us as a man speaks with his friend. Beloved, cultivate his society. Abide with him, and if he can find any cause of delight in you, which is a wonder of wonders, put all your delight in him. Let us have this gracious beauty about us, and even our heavenly bridegroom will have to say, Turn away thine eyes from me, for they have overcome me. You have ravished my heart with one of thine eyes. May we be kept from marring this beauty and be forever so fair that even our Lord himself may look and love. 
Amen. That was Charles Spurgeon, portrayed by Brad Armacost. Mm, Good stuff, and I'm glad you tuned in for part two. It makes all the difference. Yeah. He says, way back at the beginning of today's episode, Mm -hmm. uh, he talks about divine interposition. And here's the quote. You can readily judge a child of God from a hypocrite by seeing in what direction the soul turns in seasons of severe trial. It's like, where do we run? Yeah. Where do we go? Yeah. And that which is truly in us takes over when we are really under it, including when we're really angry, right? Mm, And I think it is a good indication. You could start to talk about fruit, but really, where do we run? From our smallest childhood, that would be to the trusted individual in our lives. Mm Mm-hmm. As the maturing child of God, that needs to be our Heavenly Father. Yeah. When, and, you know, I don't know about you, but in my 20s, it was hard to conceive of the kinds of trouble that would come our way. Mm. And as a follower of Christ, you could say, well, I'm hoping there wouldn't be a whole lot of that necessary. <laughs> but from this perspective of life, the people that I know that seem the most godly are the ones who have had ongoing waves of difficulty and grief. Because it does. Nothing else will push us into our Father's hands yeah. so well. And there's a, there, what's, what's not ironic is there is a beauty about people who have been through those yes. tribulations, have been through that time, have turned to their Heavenly Father, and you can see the beauty that yes. God has replaced those ashes with. So what do you think? We'd love to hear your thoughts. Please email us at podcast at unshackled.org. And don't forget to check out the Unshackled app. This has been History's Greatest Sermons, an unshackled production of Pacific Garden Mission, produced and directed by Timothy Gregory. To hear more unshackled content, you can download our app, get it for free at any of the major app stores. For more information, visit unshackled.org. Join us next time as we experience another one of History's Greatest Sermons.